I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by The Mosaic Company. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available on iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, The Mosaic Company, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Things that matter are measured in generations, like traditions, families, and farms. For a growing operation, the health of the soil should last. Introducing Sestera by The Mosaic Company. It's a first-of-its-kind phosphate fertilizer made with recycled organic matter to improve soil health and ensure its sustainability for generations to come. Visit SesteraFertilizer.com to learn how your land can provide for tomorrow's generations and leave a legacy that matters. Ty Meyer is the Production Ag Manager for the Spokane Conservation District in the Palouse region of Eastern Washington, running their direct seed and no-till programs. He also has served as the Executive Director of the Pacific Northwest Direct Seed Association for the last several years, a position he recently turned over to a new organization. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, No-Till Farmer editor Frank Lesseter talks with Meyer about how No-Till got started in the Palouse area, the challenges of integrating cover crops on dryland acres, dealing with disease pressure resulting from Greenbridge, why cereal rye isn't a viable cover crop in the region, his experience running the Smart Farm Certification Program, and much more. Todd, are you a native of that area out there, or did you grow up someplace else? No, I'm a native of Colton, Washington, grew up on the farm and cattle ranch, and moved back here about 13 years ago, back to the farm. Okay. So tell us what your job is these days. Well, I am uh, the production ag manager for the Spokane Conservation District. And for the last few years, I actually served as the executive director of the Pacific Northwest Direct Seed Association, which I just recently turned the reins over to a new organization. So I'm back to full time with the conservation district running their their direct seed and no-till programs. So Spokane is up northeast Washington. How far do you go down into the Palouse with that water conservation district? Yeah, so the conservation district, we're fairly limited to the county that we serve. So we serve Spokane County. Each county has one conservation district or a couple in some instances. So the Palouse country actually has four conservation districts serving Whitman County. And so we work closely with those districts. Some of the programs that I run at the Spokane CD actually stretches through most of eastern Washington and some of northern Idaho, some of our loan programs that we administer. So tell us a little about the farm you grew up on and what you've moved back to now. I grew up on a farm, 1,500 acres or so in southeastern Washington and across the border in Idaho, winter wheat and pea and lentil farm. And we also ran cattle. So fairly diversified for its time, but pretty conventional operation at that time as well. But the home farm would be in the Palouse, right? Yeah, it is. We're in the south of Pullman, Washington. So we're fairly close to the heart of the Palouse country. So I think for our listeners, I want you to define or describe the Palouse for me. What makes it unique, et cetera, and then we'll go from there. 
Okay. Yeah. Well, the Palouse country is pretty unique farming country. We farm in slopes. It's pretty deep soil. We're farming slopes that are 40% or more in places and it's fairly productive land from the bottom land all the way to the top. Now we've had our fair share and we're fairly well known for all of our water erosion on these hills. So the advent of direct seed and no-till is a pretty major program out here in the Palouse country. So that's what we get out here is pretty steep slopes and pretty productive crops in a non-irrigated region. But your soils are pretty deep and you get pretty decent yields. What would be the top yields people would be getting, no-tillers or direct seeders? Well, we're just coming off of the best year we've probably had combined across all crops in a long, long time, if not ever. And there were winter wheat yields on this dry land country in our direct seed and no-till crops of 130 to 150 bushels per acre. Wow. around this region. So I would say that's probably some of the top. I mean, there's outliers that went much higher than that even in certain mm-hmm. areas. But you get into our average production around this region, I would say you're in the 90 to 100 bushel range per acre mm-hmm. on an average in this region. So pretty decent yields for a dry land country. Of course, we're subject to some drought and things as well that can impact us. But we're fortunate we're in a 16 to 20 inch rainfall zone here annually. That's going to lead into my next question about rainfall, because I've been there a number of times and I've visited, but there's a tremendous difference in rainfall based on the elevation, isn't there, or where you are? Yeah, we're pretty diverse regionally here. Uh, Central Washington is pretty low rainfall region, 10 to 12, 13 inches probably, and most of that real dry land and fallow region. And as you move east, you start getting into higher rainfall regions, and then you hit the Palouse, and you know, you're really between north and south on the Palouse, talking about a 100-mile north and south region, that from east to west probably varies four to five inches of rainfall, maybe a little bit more from you know that 16-inch rainfall up to in northern Idaho here east of us, that's probably pushing 22 inches in mm-hmm. some areas. It's a good rainfall. Most of our rain, we're a fall, winter, spring rainfall region. Hopefully we get it in the fall. Sometimes we don't. But that's when the bulk of our moisture comes. And if we're lucky, we get some in June to carry our crops into July and finish them in August, take them to harvest. I've been on a few farms there where the farmer had land down close to the river. Then he had land that was really elevated. So the difference in moisture between those two could be really significant, right? There is a significant amount of rainfall changes there. Uh, down on that Snake River region, out on the rim country, we call it, out on the edge of that canyon, you know, it doesn't take but a few miles to go from 10 to 12 inches clear to 16, 18 inches of rainfall. So pretty significant changes in farming practices in those regions. So for years, it was a winter wheat area. Now you've kind of got some spring crops and you got some other crops. What other crops are being planted? Yeah, well, like you said, historically, back when I was younger, growing up around here, we even had fallow on the Palouse, which doesn't seem to make sense today because of our (laughs) rainfall. But the diversity today, largely in the past, we were winter wheat and dry green peas, typically, some lentils, some barley in the spring was grown. That has evolved to uh, winter wheat, still the major crop around here, but we're seeing a tremendous amount of spring canola being put in the ground and garbanzo beans have been a big rotational crop for us competing right up there with winter wheat for revenue in most years. So the last couple of years have been tough on garbanzo beans because of price and the amount of them that have been raised. So we're seeing a little reduction in the amount of those garbanzo beans put in the ground and people transitioning over to more, say, the canolas and spring wheat and some barley as well. 
Now, you talked a minute, and we'll talk about it later, but Pacific Northwest Direct Seed Association, you call it direct seed out there, but I think early on it was kind of known as no-till, and it didn't work so well. Is that true, and you kind of switched the name? Yeah, I think we had some early adopters out here and some of the equipment that was developed early that really gave people the ability to no-till out here on these hills in the Palouse. And I actually think some of the equipment was ahead of our time, of our understanding mm-hmm. some of the green bridge issues and things that could occur with the growing winter wheat on winter wheat year after year. And so we saw some failures occur because of the green bridge and disease issues. And no-till kind of got a little bit of a bad connotation to it here in the Palouse for a while. And as the direct seed association started, I think they weighed the name no-till versus direct seeding and felt that the name change to direct seeding meant more to producers and gave them a better opportunity to have a little more flexibility on the Palouse in what they did in terms of practices, still maintaining a high level of conservation, but largely still holds. We've got NRCS that that recognizes direct seed as well in this region and different practices versus true uh, no-till. A couple different practices we utilize. Right. Well, we started no-till farmer in 1972, and I remember Mort Swanson was one of the pioneers out there Mm -hmm. with his yielder drills. Had no-till caught on before 1972 or around that time? I guess my understanding of no-till in this region started occurring around the time that the yielder drills and Mort and now Guy Swanson there really were the developers of that. And I think that's when it really got a good start out here in a hole. And then that's when we saw some of the issues, I think, back then as we started seeing a little disease issue and things pop up in our wetter soils and areas. But they were the pioneers. They were out front on this. What's the reason it got started? Was it erosion or yields or saving time or what? Yeah, I think the adoption of no-till back then, in my understanding of it, was related to erosion. It was an environmental issue occurring on the farms that some people were recognizing that there had to be a different way on these slopes and seeing the true amount of soil that was moving in our heavy conventional tillage systems led folks like the Swansons to really look at a different type of equipment to be able to manage residue and keep that residue on the field. Think about that. They were ahead of their time, and at least in this region, and really thinking about the benefit of residue on our field and what that could do for uh, keeping our soil in place. So that was a tremendous invention out here in this region. Right. You're talking about moving soil. I've seen pictures where there'd be a foot of soil washed down on a road and there'd be road graders scraping mud off the roads. That still happen with some conventional fields or not? It does. We still have some producers in the region that are using largely conventional tillage practices. We don't see many of the moldboard plows anymore in the region, though there are some being used. It never ceases to amaze the amount of tillage that can be done in this region based on our conditions. If we've Mm. got really heavy crops in one year and people don't know what to do with residue, you'll start to see some tillage occurring again in places. And so absolutely, we can have the train wreck out here today, just like we did in the past, but they're not nearly as frequent or there's not as many locations that you find that happening these days. There's a lot of residue being left on these fields. Even conventional tillage operations are leaving residue now throughout the winter through our most erosive periods. So that ground is covered. And so they're mitigating it that way and doing a really good job of trying to protect it during our winter and early spring seasons. Yeah. I have a personal experience with this. I was out there maybe 15 years ago or so in middle of May on a photo workshop. 
and the people mm-hmm. running it had a van, and we got stuck on a road down south of Pullman someplace. Hope it wasn't your farm, but we got stuck <laughs> down there, and there was just like an inch or so of mud or two inches of mud on the road, but the van couldn't move. We ended up having to get AAA to come and pull it off the road. Yeah, it is amazing. It doesn't take a massive storm. Our soils get pretty heavy and pretty saturated with a lot of rain down here. And so springtime can be interesting. If we get a pretty heavy storm, Why well, you'll see some real erosion and things occurring in some of these fields. Yeah. Tell us, uh, has cover crops got a place out there or not? Yeah, Frank, cover crops are an interesting one for us. They definitely have a place. We just don't know exactly how to utilize them yet. (laughs) Our systems, with most of our moisture coming in the winter and spring, we're really finding it difficult right now to figure out where you insert a cover crop into an annual cropping system in this Mm -hmm. region when we have no August and September moisture. Yeah, And that's really our challenge is we've got rent systems and land ownership systems set up that we're expecting a crop every year off this land. And so setting aside acres for cover crops is tough for people because you're paying rent on that ground. So then you're trying to figure out where's the revenue come from? Is it from grazing? Is there another way to pull some revenue off of that ground if we actually put it into rotation and a cover crop and you're not getting revenue off of it? That's a big hit to the operator. So certainly they've got a place. We've had some success with doing some integrated grazing on a smaller basis on some of the farms here. We've seen some benefits of interceding some cover crops and doing some of those things, but we've also had a few failures, no doubt, trying to figure out what varieties work here. It's tough for us to establish the warm season crops because we run out of moisture pretty quickly as we get into June. And so then looking at winter cover crops, so winter crops that we can take through the winter and have grown in the spring. So I guess all that to say, we certainly think there's a place for them and we see the benefits of it and we're struggling to figure out exactly how to integrate them into our systems. All right. So uh, you mentioned Greenbridge. Can you explain for our listeners what Greenbridge is? Yeah. Greenbridge on the Palouse was really related to that transfer of disease in the living roots uh, from one crop to the next. So after harvest, we get a regrowth on our fields from crop that made it through the combine and landed on the ground. So winter wheat coming back up in the fall and making it through the winter and disease living on the roots of those plants and transferring to the roots of a new plant. So a lot of that was discovered. Uh, Jim Cook did that out of the Ag Research Service, I believe, here in Pullman. And that's really what helped us identify a new way of no-tilling in this region to make sure that that green bridge was addressed. And that's done by making sure you've got a couple weeks, two to three weeks of dead plants. So getting out there and making sure that regrowth is not living for a period of time before you put a new root in that ground, a new seed that have disease transfer off to the new roots. Right. I think we may have some of this back here in the Corn Belt, or it may be coming in with some cover crops, but people really haven't noticed it. Although I've talked to Hans Koch about it, who worked out in your area there and came back to Indiana, and he has speculated that we've got it sometimes, but we don't know we've got it. Okay. So uh, did fallow go away as soon as we started no-tilling? Fallow on the Palouse. That was in my early days being around the farm when I know they were still doing some fallow. I think that practice went away. Uh, Moisture was always here on the Palouse and people figured out they should be getting crop off of this ground every year. So I don't know that it was necessarily with the advent of no-till in this region. It was more a product of revenue generation, I think, and the realization we had the soils and the moisture to be getting a crop off of it each year. And so that changed. It's important to remember, I would venture 
venture to guess we're still hovering around the 50% level of adoption of no-till in this region. So we've still got a tremendous amount of acres out here that though they may not be the full heavy tillage, moldboard plow and things, have a, I would still classify in the conventional tillage category. Right. What keeps these other 50% from direct seeding? I wish you could tell me the answer to that. I think there's a challenge out here. We're blessed with, again, deep soils and moisture that grows good crops. And sometimes I think change is hard. Why fix something when it's not necessarily perceived to be broken? And I think that that's a matter of perception, a matter of income that can be produced off the ground using certain practices. Uh, Conventional tillage is a known entity out here. It's pretty easy for bankers and accountants and farmers to understand what they're going to get out of a conventional tillage system. And it comes down to the realization or recognition of environmental impact of erosion and the sustainability of that resource. And I don't want to say people aren't concerned about it, but I don't know that the emphasis is there because of our current economic situation in ag. Making the investment in new equipment and bigger equipment at a time when margins are so thin is perceived as risk. So making that change, I think, is tough for people. What would happen to direct seeding out there if we had to really cut back on Roundup or glyphosate? Boy, we would have challenges, no doubt. I think we're in a system that we're managing our weed issues and things by the use of chemicals versus tillage. So those discussions are underway with producers and ag groups all around this region. If Obviously, glyphosate's under pressure right now, and I think it's realistic to assume the writing may be on the wall there. I don't know. But right. it's really why we're looking at alternate methods right now, looking at cover crops. What can we do to help suppress weeds in this region? to take us to a different area where we're not necessarily dependent on that chemistry to manage our weed issues. So uh, there's a lot of efforts out here going on right now to try to figure that out. I know the Midwest, you guys have had some tremendous success in suppressing weeds with cover crops and you've got heavy cover crop growth in a lot of regions. And I think one of our challenges is we just simply can't use rye out in this region. You guys have a tremendous tool there when you're growing amazing amounts of biomass using rye as a cover crop. And this region, we've been battling Italian rye for decades, trying to keep it out of these farms and these wheat fields. So it's very much viewed as a risk in utilizing that as a cover crop. So you take one tool out of that cover crop toolbox out here that might be one of the most successful in suppressing weeds and just kind of lends itself to the challenges we're having trying to implement cover crops Right. right now. You talked about biomass or residue, and there must be some huge amounts when you've got 120 bushel wheat yield. Oh, there is. I can't even guess right now, Frank, what the total tonnage is out on these fields. I mean, when you're seeing 130, 150 bushel winter wheat, yeah, we've got pretty heavy residue. A lot of guys managed it. There's a lot of mowing that goes on after harvest in this region to try to bust some of that stubble up into smaller chunks. So the guys that are using a higher disturbance direct seed system can get through it with those shank drills. And we've got a few, even the guys that are running disc drills that will potentially struggle getting through all the residue out here. By and large, this residue is keeping things in place and people have figured out the guys that are direct seeding and no-tilling know how to handle it on their operation. We'll come right back to Frank and Ty Meyer, but I'd like to take another moment to thank our sponsor, The Mosaic Company, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Things that matter are measured in generations, like traditions, families, and farms. For a growing operation, the health of the soil should last. 
Introducing Sestera by the Mosaic Company. It's a first-of-its-kind phosphate fertilizer made with recycled organic matter to improve soil health and ensure its sustainability for generations to come. Visit SesteraFertilizer.com to learn how your land can provide for tomorrow's generations and leave a legacy that matters. Before we get back to Frank's conversation with Ty Meyer, here's Frank with a little-known no-till farmer fact. What do you have for us today, Frank? Dwayne Beck, he's the South Dakota State University agronomist and manager of the farmer-owned Dakota Lakes Research Farm at Pierre, South Dakota. And he's produced some of the most practical no-till research found anywhere in the world. And he's been big on introducing additional crops into long-term no-till rotations and is a strong advocate for using cover crops with no-till. Well, he's about to retire from this position even though he's shown the importance of seeding a diversified assortment of cover crops, been a strong advocate for keeping something green and growing on the soil surface every month of the year. He's an unusual researcher that understands the needs for providing no-tillers with highly practical and profitable ideas they can put to immediate use. I remember we had Dwayne as a speaker at the very first National No-Tillage Conference in Indianapolis in 1993. And I still remember Duane saying this, you folks in the Eastern Corn Belt no-till to get rid of the water. In South Dakota, we no-till to capture every raindrop we can. So Duane, you've well deserved your retirement and enjoy it. Thanks for all you've done for no-till. Let's get back to the conversation as Ty Meyer talks about why he chooses to use a cross-lot drill. How long have you been no-tilling on the home farm? Well, ours started out, like I say, conventional for a long time. And then we had a transition back in the mid-90s that went to a very successful two-pass direct seed systems. So shanking fertilizer in and seeding mm-hmm. into it. And that was probably one of the most successful times this farm has seen. That transition occurred very well. I've got a cousin that was operating the farm at the time doing that. And he took a lot of bushels off the farm and was very successful with it. And then about six years ago, we transitioned the farm over to 100% no-till. So this thing has seen nothing but a cross-lot drill in the last six years. So nice to see. It's pretty well protected and covered and a lot of different trials going on right now, Frank, trying to figure out cover crops and some potential grazing and other things to integrate with that cross-lot system. Well, you brought up cross-lot. So that's the system from New Zealand, John Baker and Gavin Porter's here in the States, and they've moved it back close to us here in Wisconsin. It's only about 70 miles from where we are in the Milwaukee area. But what made you go to cross-lot? I mean, it's not cheap. It's expensive equipment. Tell me a little about your experience with cross-lot. Yeah, well, I've got a couple different experiences, I guess, with Crosslot. I don't farm this place myself. I have the opportunity to live on the homestead. Okay. My wife and I do, and we both work in Spokane, so we're 90 miles from our work. But we live on the farm, and Kay's brothers, Ben and Frank Wolf, actually farm this place now. Oh, okay. I didn't realize and- that was her brothers. Okay. You bet. And Dan, her dad, was engaged in early stages of no-till on the Palouse as well, uh, using cross-slot. And so, in fact, he owned the first drill out of the Ag Research Service in Pullman. He bought that. And so they've been no-tilling with a cross-slot probably for 20 years now or more. And that was my first exposure with cross-slot. And now they've been pretty successful with it. They've had quite a transition. They've seen the ups and downs of trying to implement it in a dry land region, but with a fair amount of moisture. So we're dealing with disease at times and things. But that system 
At a time when other people are trying to get rid of residue, they thrive in it. That system is built for residue and it works. And then I guess to transition a little bit here for you, in my work with the conservation district where I loan money to farmers to purchase direct seed and no-till equipment, we got a cross-lot drill under our ownership at the conservation district and actually ran it as a, an entity within our conservation district. So I was actually running a cross-lot for about three years, okay. doing some custom seeding for people that wanted no-till on their farms. So that system gave us a good opportunity to be out and working with people that wanted to see no-till and they wanted some cutting edge technology, something that they hadn't potentially had the opportunity to see. So a couple different exposures, I guess, on my side of it. Right. I think maybe 15 years ago or so, I was at a field day at Wolf's, which uh, probably the first time I had well, maybe not. Maybe it wasn't the first time I'd seen Crosslot. But then uh, my son and I were out in the Palouse 10 years ago, and Gavin Porter took us to a guy who was doing a lot of custom work with the Crosslot planner, and I can't remember his name. but It may have been the drill we had at the district. Travis Wilson may have been running it at the time. I'm not okay. sure, but he did a bunch of work for us as well running that Crosslot. So there was a couple operations here doing that. John Olson up in Garfield was doing a lot of custom work and still does some with a cross lot as well. So I'm intrigued. You're 90 miles to Spokane and both you and your wife work there. Do you drive together or not? Yeah, yeah, we do when we can, Frank. Right, it's, right. Uh, it's a never-ending battle to figure out schedules and things. But now we're used to driving. We both go when we need to go. We're fairly blessed to live on the farm and have our kids in the community where we grew up. And yeah. that's why we moved down here. And right. with the advent of this last year, 2020 and COVID and everything, it's actually taken a lot of pressure off of us for traveling back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, this digital age, we both work from home anyway, for the most part. So we were pretty well versed in uh, the home office and telecommuting. So we've done it for the better part of 15 years, each of us. So we feel really fortunate to have the technology in place on the farm here to, to manage two jobs like that and still stay engaged with our employers and be well connected so i raised this question because my wife worked here for years doing the accounting work and is now retired but we only lived about four miles from the office but it never made sense for us to drive together (laughs) one of us would want to go home before the other one (laughs) that's right now i would say that only 10 percent of the time do we actually line our schedules up the rest of the time we just go we don't plan around each other I've always been impressed with the Spokane Soil and Water District. It seems to me that you do so many more things than most soil and water conservation districts around the country. You get grant money, you do things that are unique. Tell me a little about how that works for you. Yeah, Spokane Conservation District has been quite an entity to work for. About 17 years with them now. What intrigued me when I started was just how progressive they were with things. And I think we've carried that on fairly well over the last 15 years or so. And it's really a desire by the organization to stay out in front and be on the cutting edge of conservation and helping producers and landowners really have successful operations and protect their natural resources. So we do. We kind of view things. I think a lot of districts are looking this way today. We've been doing it quite some time, really looking at how do you stay out in front and stay out on that cutting edge, like I say. And we utilize a lot of different programs. The one I run, the loan program, it's been in place for about 20 years now or more. And we get money from the Washington State Department of Ecology. Their state revolving funds passed through from Environmental Protection Agency. And we apply for those funds and they give them to us to loan out to producers to help buy equipment. And so we've 
probably put out $30 million or so to producers in the last 15 years, somewhere in there, to help them buy direct seed and no-till equipment. And it's really quite a program, Frank, because we borrow the money from the Department of Ecology and loan it out to producers and pay it back to ecology. So if you talk about the effect of a true conservation program, the public is helping invest in conservation. The producers are purchasing the equipment and putting the practices on the ground and everybody's paid back for it. So it's quite a revolving fund and uh, it's put a lot of conservation on the ground in eastern Washington. So if I'm out there and I want to buy a 50 or 60 foot air seeder, do I come to you people or I go to the bank or what do I do? (laughs) Yeah, we've got multiple different options. I think there's lots of lenders in this region that'll loan money to producers on that equipment, no doubt about it. Our program is unique in that it's dedicated to that practice. So Mm -hmm. if you're a farmer that's trying to transition or maybe you're not getting the support you hoped from people that are helping you make decisions on finances, we can actually get equipment financed. Yeah. And it's not that we're making poor financial decisions with producers. We're helping them kind of get over the hump on that initial cost and that capital outlay. So that's what the program is about. It's really helping people adopt the practice and then make improvements in their system. So we've got repeat customers for the better part of 15 years that I've seen them just started direct seeding and we've helped them buy their first two-pass system, a higher disturbance drill and maybe another system to help get fertilizer in the ground. And now they're true 100% no-till. And we've financed their equipment all the way through over the years. So it's kind of a go-to program for a select group of people that have really chosen to use it. And then we get new customers every day that come in the door as they're trying to transition to direct seed and no-till. It really is a pretty neat program to help people do that. Right. It's interesting. I did a podcast a month or so ago with a really good no-tiller out of Pennsylvania, and he's been no-tilling and cover crops and solar, and he's got broilers and he's got hogs. And anyway, he had gotten a grant from one of the government programs to put on hog manure with a drag line. So he told me that part of this was he had to come up with something besides that. And the two things that really would work for him were cover crops and no-till, but it wasn't going to qualify for the program because he'd been using them for so long. And he ended up putting in terraces on some area just because he had to do something different. When we heard for years and years, if you no-tilled, maybe you wouldn't need terraces. But to qualify, you had to do it, come up with something new. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that brings up an important point, Frank, and that is that we're constantly trying to deal with the implementation of new practices out here. And we constantly run into different things you have to navigate, portions of the system in order to make those work in our region. We've got generally accepted farming practices out here and cover crops are, we're trying to shoehorn them in, trying to figure out where they fit. And what impact those have on the insurability of our other crops, especially in our fallow systems where they're leaving the ground fallow for a year and now they're trying to cover crop those and it's having an impact on the insurability potentially of other crops down the road. And I think that's something that we have to continue to evolve with out here. One of the true challenges we have with some of the conservation programs is that the early adopters in our direct seed and no-till systems out here struggle, just like you said, to figure out how to get into programs these days because they're perceived to have already achieved a pretty high level. And so, yes, they're constantly looking for what's the next practice they can do on those farms. And so it's it's a challenge for them to keep up with things and at the same time manage their participation in these programs. So what kind of new challenges are you seeing that they might get into? 
Well, I think the new farm bill, though I don't know all the intricacies of that, I think that my understanding is there's more opportunities for our longer-term direct seed and no-till producers now because soil health is now a resource concern for USDA, for NRCS. In the past, it wasn't. So uh, people that had already implemented, that had then gone through EQIP or then into CSP that had already implemented a direct seed or no-till system, they'd done some precision ag components on their farm, uh, didn't qualify for some of the new rounds right. of funding that came out. So I think having soil health as a resource concern was both a great recognition by the USDA that that was a major concern out here, that we should be working towards healthy soils in, in the implementation of these practices, but it's helped some of these producers to diversify some of their practices and sure. giving them another opportunity to participate and really take those operations to a new level. I mean, we've got direct seed and no-till guys that have been doing it so long that I think we've seen a plateau in yield potential. And it's simply because I think we're learning today that there's more to a full conservation ag system, as they say around the world, that a three or four pronged approach to soil health. And part of it, one leg of the stool is no-till, lack of uh, tillage and disturbance to the soil. So we've done a very good job of farming residue in this region for years. And I think we adequately managed to assume that if we had residue, we were going to have healthy soil. And I think to a degree, we achieved that. We had some pretty big increases in organic matter on some of these farms. And so we saw a much higher water holding capacity occur in these soils before we saw any erosion events occur. But we need to add the other components. And that's why we're looking so hard at the cover crops and crop diversity now. Right. Yep. I pulled up a couple articles from the past before I talked to you, and I pulled one up from 2011, and it was done down at the Dan Long, down at the Columbia Plateau Conservation Research Center in Pendleton, Oregon. And one of the amazing things, that, and we talked about this a little, but they discovered there were 70% more runoff and 52 times more eroded material from conventionally tilled wheat fields and for no-tilled wheat. I mean, that's just amazing that what you guys have done on these steep slopes. It truly is. I think I've seen a copy of that research. And when you see it out here on the field is when it really hits home what that yep. means. 72 times and 52 times the erosion. I mean, it's nothing for you to drive by a field on the Palouse or it wasn't in the past and see real erosion rills in these hills that were three to six inches deep in places. And sheet erosion that just went across the whole hillside took soil off. So <laughs> you look at what the true value of that is. Unfortunately, it's tough. We've got deep soil out here. And so that erosion isn't necessarily or hasn't to date necessarily translated into huge economic losses for right, producers. Right, right. Uh, we've got good deep soil. Now, we're starting to see it. There's no doubt about it. I mean, we've got hilltops that are down to heavy clay, and the production of those hilltops isn't nearly as high as it is in the hillsides and the bottoms. But you look at a study like that, and it tells you why uh, we're focused on making some of these transitions. It's the integral on these hills. Right. One of the things I'd like to talk about for just a minute is uh, something that our Midwestern or Southern people don't see, and that's the self-leveling combines. Can you explain why they're really important out there and how they work a little bit? 
Yeah, you bet. These hillsides are, like I say, they're steep enough slopes and things that your typical combine would have a bit of a challenge navigating around those hills and actually saving the grain. So you've seen the development of leveling systems out here probably for 40 years or more now on some of these combines. And really, it's a grain saving component that keeps those combines up on the hill. It's safer for some of those guys to be on those steeper hills. And it keeps those thrashing systems level on those hillsides, at least to as much extent as they can. And I think they do a better job of saving grain. We still see combines out here that don't have levelers on them that are able to go across the hillsides, but they've developed uh, systems to save the grain better and do a good job at it. So yeah, you see a combination of it out here, but the bulk of them are running leveling systems on those machines when they're up on those 30, 40% slopes. So on one of these machines, at one side, the wheels might be four or five feet lower than the wheels on the other side? <laughs> they can be. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> I think, absolutely. I know you've been out at John Ashelman's farm. Sure, right. And he's farmed some of the steepest slopes I've ever seen farmed in the Palouse out on mm-hmm. his place. And so there's no doubt in my mind if you put one of these great big machines on those hillsides today, as big as they are, uh, if you stood at the bottom, you'd be, I'm a short guy, so I'd be easily <laughs> looking at the bottom of the uphill tire right. <laughs> at times. Let's talk a minute about the Pacific Northwest Rick Seed Association. It's probably been one of the more successful local groups in North America. Can you tell me a little bit about the members, how it works, etc.? Yeah, Pacific Northwest Direct Seed Association. It, yeah, it's a nonprofit member-based organization, and it's been around for upwards of 20 years now on the Palouse country, the Washington, Oregon, and Idaho membership mainly in that organization. And it's really about education and outreach, that association. And so they put on an annual conference every year as well. It's usually early January and couple-day event that draws four to 500 people in the region. And it's a cropping systems conference. It's really a discussion about how we adapt our systems into direct seed and no-till and make them successful, reducing the learning curve for people. So pretty successful organization that way. And they've worked hard on really trying to help people adapt those practices over to something that works on their operations. So again, direct seed gives us a little flexibility in our system. And so we try to bring those producers together to walk through it. Years ago, you were working on a certification program with them. Did it turn out or what happened to that? Yeah, so the Farm Smart certification, yeah. it's still in existence. It's still moving forward. We're working on a pretty large effort right now, Frank, to take that to a much larger audience. So uh, the initial criteria were developed for dry land agriculture. And so we're working on a set of criteria that would take it into potentially irrigated country and row crops as well. So I think you'll see over the next year or so a little larger push to make that a more of a mainstream recognized program. So yeah, it's been a little bit of a process to develop it and really get the feet under the program. But there's a pretty big, like I say, effort going on right now within the Direct Seed Association to allow that program to evolve and reach out to more people and really start representing regenerative agriculture from kind of a grassroots organization from the ground up. So when you talk to regenerative, will we see some of these people in the Palouse running cattle? I think you'll see some of them running cattle on some of this ground. I think that provides an opportunity, like we talked uh, a while back, about getting revenue off of cover crops 
Sure. If we really look at putting those into a rotation on the Palouse. So I think that provides a pretty good opportunity for producers. I don't know that you'll see wide scale adoption or implementation of integrated grazing on the Palouse. Seems like 25 years ago, we got rid of all the fences around here. And exactly. So right. <laughs> the infrastructure is largely gone, but it provides interesting opportunities. It's an environmental issue. I think that integrated grazing out here on cover crops really gets our cattle up off our streams, moves them out onto the farm ground so you can potentially address a pretty large water quality issue or problem where we've got cattle concentrated sometimes around our streams because that's where the last grass is and the water is. So with our cover crop opportunities and things we're researching and this integrated grazing, I think it really does provide some benefit getting things right. out there, right. um, moving the cattle off the streams. We'll see one how of, far it goes here. Yeah, yeah. One of the other things that some of the members have been involved in has been Shepherd's Grain, but this is a program where you get paid extra for producing a high quality crop, right? Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, well, FarmSmart, it's really about certifying and validating that the practices are being done to a high okay. standard. And with that, we hope that gives the producer the opportunity to differentiate their farm from others that aren't adopted, at least at that high a level, in terms of conservation practices. So sure. we think as Shepherd's Green has done a very good job of setting themselves apart based on conservation practices and farming methods, this certification is a third-party validation that the public can trust that this is actually actually being done on these farms. Yeah. And uh, we're putting auditors on the ground that work with the producers to validate that those practices are done. So that value chain, it's transparent. It starts at the farm with a certified auditor and walks through a set of criteria with the producer. And we validate that it's being done on an annual basis. So there's value in that for those producers. I represent just one small portion of what we do at the Spokane CD. And sure. we've got a large water quality program that has people that we just got done with a $7.4 million RCPP program, that Regional Conservation Partnership Program within RCS. And uh, that was a major program within our conservation district for the last five years. So those are the kind of programs that we continue to look for and strive for for these producers. And we're fortunate to be working for such an innovative board that we have at the conservation district. You ran the Pacific Direct Seed Association for a while, but you've just stepped back from that. What's happening with them? I have. The association is moving forward well. They have uh, hired a company out of Kennewick, Washington, Ag Association Management, who has been running our conference for the Direct Seed Association for five years or so. And they're going to take over the management duties of the association going forward. And Kim Brunson is now the director for the association. So it's a great transition. Frank K ran the association for about six years and then sure. I took over for uh, three years or so and it was time for me to be able to get back to focus on the work I'm doing at the conservation district still working very closely with the direct seed association on the farm smart certification program we operate a couple grants we have over time and we have one going now that is working with that program as well so there's some great crossover but it put me back at a point where I have time to focus on moving some of those initiatives forward and really focusing back on my work with the conservation district. Okay. Great. I think we'll mm -hmm. wrap this up. It's exciting to come to the Palouse. I'm getting older, but I got to still make at least one more trip back to Palouse while I'm still Do alive. It. Yeah, absolutely. Let us know when you come out this way again. Say hello, hello. to Kay and have a great holiday yeah. season. We'll be in touch. All right, Frank, you too. Thanks. Okay. You're welcome. Bye. All right. We'll see you. 
Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener inquiry. A question we've gotten from readers, which kind of fits with today's podcast, is with the use of equal fallow or chemical fallow, and that's what was pretty popular not only in Nebraska, but in the Palouse area of Washington and Oregon and Idaho, where Ty Meyer is talking about what's going on in that area today. Well, but way back in 1979, Paul Schaefer of Indianola, Nebraska, who was a no-till farmer of the year then, penciled out both conventional tillage and no-till machinery costs for a grower in the Western Great Plains who was on an eco-fowl system. And that's a system where he used chemicals instead of tillage for weed control, and he was growing wheat, and then the fallow rotation in which a crop wasn't grown one year, so you had one crop every two years. Well, Paul had figured out if you were using conventional tillage and doing tillage to control weeds, you needed a machinery investment of about $193,000 on a fairly good-sized farm. Yet, if you were into an equal-fowl system where you're using chemicals, you only needed about $124,000 worth of machinery. So there was a $70,000 savings right there in machinery costs alone, and this eventually, years later, led to everybody pretty much moving away from fallow and then getting two crops in two years instead of one crop every two years. to Frank Lesseter and Ty Meyer for today's discussion, and thanks to our sponsor, The Mosaic Company, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notofarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.